Only 8% of job applicants ever make it to the interview phase. On average, 118 people will apply for a given job these days in the current economy. The pressure is compounded when you learn that 77% of recruiters will disqualify you as a candidate if they find a typo on your resume. Yikes. Now, God isn't hiring, but he does like to add people to his company. The problem is we're all disqualified, much worse than typos on our resume. None of us measure up. There's no one good enough to be recruited to join his company. But in God's mind, we're all loved enough to be rescued. The State of the Union, quarterly corporate earnings calls, unemployment and inflation reports, they all evaluate what's going on in a group or a firm or a community, and they identify weaknesses and then make projections for the future. Psalm 14 is a sort of state of the human report for us, and apparently the Lord really wants us to get this message, uh, because news to me when I was studying this uh, this week, but do you know that this psalm is published a second time, almost word for word? In Psalm 53, you can turn there if you'd like, you're going to see the same thing. And I will think, wait, how do I not know that, that one Psalm appears two times, almost verbatim? And not only that, Paul repeats much of this Psalm in his letter to the Romans, a big chunk of it too. And so message received, Lord, you want us to know uh, the state of the human. This is the situation. This is the condition and position of man. And it's not a pretty picture. Let's look at verse one. For the choir director of David... The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Rodents of unusual size? I don't think they exist. And that line in The Princess Bride, most of you know, is immediately and hilariously followed by a rodent of unusual size, absolutely smashing Wesley out of frame and chewing him up for a bit. It's one of the best scenes in the whole movie. Just because a person says he doesn't think it exists, doesn't make it so. What novel or symphony, what knock-knock joke ever wrote itself? What painting ever simply materialized on a blank canvas? But this psalm isn't just talking about sort of the quintessential smug YouTube atheist who takes so much pleasure in mocking the idea that a God could exist. This is including people who live as if there is no God whether they believe philosophically a God exists or not, a designer exists or not. Uh, and that's a much larger group of people. Uh, that includes ourselves, if we're honest, from time to time. When we live as if either God does not exist or what God has said is not true or that God doesn't care the choices that we make. The truth is, most people out there will tell you they believe a God exists, 74% of Americans by one recent count, 82% of Russians by another. But how many live as if God exists? To either reject the idea that God exists philosophically or to even acknowledge that a designer must exist or a God must exist somewhere to create all of this, but then to live as if it doesn't matter or live as if he doesn't care about your life, your choices, your heart, David says Either way, that is foolish. And he uses a particular Hebrew word here. 
He says, the Nabal says in his heart, there's no God. Of course, many of you know, who are familiar with the Old Testament, that there was a man named Nabal during David's time who absolutely embodied foolishness. If you wanna see what foolishness looks like, look at this guy. He was selfish, senseless, short-sighted. But his foolishness went beyond being the local curmudgeon, the neighborhood jerk. He was a danger to himself and to others. Because of his foolishness, he almost got all the men in his community killed. And his foolishness was a harm to his family, to his uh, community. It ultimately put him into an early grave and no one was sorry to see him go. And so if you wanna know what foolishness looks like when it is bearing fruit in a human life, you can look at Nabal, and that's the Hebrew word for fool. The Nabal says in his heart, there's no God. And this is true of every fool. Uh, this, this damage that fools do to other people near them uh, and, and, and to the human community. To one degree or another, every single fool is corrupted and does vile deeds. Now, some fools do much more vile things than others do. I'm not saying that every single sinner uh, does the same volume of sin, and particularly with the same kinds of consequences. But the truth is, every fool is like Nabal. Rejecting God results in corruption and vile deeds. I'm sure we can all identify some fools that we know, if we think about it for a moment. Please don't say them out loud. Uh, but if, you, if I said, who's a fool that you know, in your, you know in your life, in your sphere of influence, out on the wider world stage, again, please don't say them out loud. But we could think about it and be like, yep, that person's a fool, that person's a fool, that person's a fool. But David would have us sing this song with a mirror in our hands, right? He says, there's no one who does good. Meaning that you're a fool and I'm a fool too. We're all Nabals at heart. Now this is a bold claim, but if we pause to consider, we find it is a very true claim and a very obvious one. Uh, all of us have this inclination toward rebellion, inclination toward foolishness, inclination to, to resist God, resist his truth, resist his commands, resist his directions. Anytime I go my own way, instead of going God's way, which has been clearly laid out for us on the pages of scripture, anytime I do that, then I am living as if there is no God or as if God does not care about my life. And therefore, if I boil it all the way down and strip away the niceties, I am a fool in that decision. Now, of course, I don't consider myself a Nabal, not by a long shot, but let's see what God thinks when he takes an assessment. Verse two, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. We sense the exasperation in David, and he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We see this seeking that God is doing, looking everywhere in every corner. Uh, there are lots of, of, of stories where the good guys or the, or the good organization is trying to find that one special person or that special group of people who will become the chosen ones, right? Willy Wonka found Charlie. Mr. Benedict found the four extraordinary children who would comprise his mysterious society. Men in Black found Will Smith, right? There's always that one. Okay, this person is gonna rise above the others, is gonna lead the fight. This person is the chosen one that is gonna 
push us over into victory. God looks down on everyone in the human race, and it seems like in that last phrase of verse three, he even checks the list twice, right? He's making a list, and he checks it twice, and his finding is, oh man, there's not one who does good. No, not one. Pretty poor showing for team humanity. One translation puts it this way, all turn astray, all together be fouled. Uh, I like that, it's a good image. It's not just that human beings, you and I, are misunderstood or that we're being misused on team humanity. You hear about this sometimes in the world of sports. Uh, For example, Michael Jordan started off as a baseball player as a youngster. He didn't even make his varsity team until after his sophomore year of, in basketball, until after his sophomore year in high school. He had wanted to be a ball player. His dad had wanted him to be a ball player. And we would look at that now with the knowledge of history and say, you're being misused, right? You're not supposed to be on the baseball team. You made that abundantly clear at one point in your sports career. You should be on the basketball team. We just needed to get you in the right spot and then you would shine. That's not what's going on with team humanity. It's not that we're misunderstood. It's not that we're misused. It's not that God isn't sure how to put us together the right way. It's that sin has ruined us. And we see it's not just a passive thing as if, well, you know, God is looking for people who look really good, but sin is kind of like a big stain on the front of my shirt. And so that looks pretty bad. And so, you know, no, sin is much more active than that. It's much worse because we see here not only do we have the stain of sin, right? But it says we have turned away from God. We have departed. We have defected. We have withdrawn from God. What's the first thing Adam and Eve did uh, when they sinned in the garden? They hid from God. Of course, he came looking for them. He reached out to them. He called to them. He made coverings for them. But they turned away from him. And the truth is, We all have made the same choice that Adam and Eve made, only we make the choice again and again, day after day, right? Because we have become corrupt in our human nature. That's the second time David used that word, corrupt, already in three verses. That's pretty bad news because when the Lord looked down on the earth at the time of Noah, what did he see? He said, oh, mankind has become totally corrupt, and so now I'm going to have to judge them, right? And so uh, it's not good news to get this state of the human report and say, hey, humanity uh, as a group and individually, uh, we are corrupt. Every time the Lord assesses humanity, this is what happens, right? The Tower of Babel comes down, he says, this isn't good, we have to deal with this. The days of Noah, same thing. During Ezekiel's time, he comes down, he says to Ezekiel, let me show you what I'm seeing when I look at the temple and I look at this community of people. During Jesus' first coming to earth, right, he came down and the very people that should have received him most and should have been most ready to receive the Messiah, they're the ones that put him to death. And so the story is always the same because the human heart has become wayward and corrupted by sin. We have turned from God. Okay, well then, if no one does good and if no one seeks God and if we've turned away and been corrupted, then does that suggest then that effectively there's no real hope for the average person. Uh, God only saves a few people that he decides to sort of wake up out of sin and he doesn't save the rest. Or, or, or does that assume or suggest that as some Christian traditions teach that regeneration, becoming a Christian, precedes faith, uh, that since we're dead in sin and none seek God and none are righteous, then we can't exercise faith 
that a person only seeks God because God determines that they do and effectively forces them to? Is that what David is suggesting? No. Uh, Psalm 14, and the words here are not the only words found in the Bible. The Bible reveals to us, in addition to this passage, that without the intervention of God's grace, then yes, humanity will always stay in sin. We're never going to get better and better and reach righteousness on our own. God must intervene uh, graciously with his truth, his righteousness, his salvation, otherwise we would be lost forever. But God has graciously intervened. That's the story of the Bible. That's the good news of the gospel, that our situation is very, very bad because we've been ruined by sin and we've turned away from God, but God has intervened. And we see that he reveals himself in nature so that every single person to ever be born on planet Earth can have some testimony that there is a God and that he's made a world for them and so that they uh, might understand that, hey, maybe I wanna know more about this God. Not just revealing himself in nature, he has specifically revealed himself in his word. And he preserves his word and he sends his word out uh, place to place, all the corners of the earth. Uh, on top of that, the Bible reveals that he calls to us, right? In the Revelation, there's this beautiful picture. Jesus says, I'm not, I knock at the door of your heart. And individually, anybody who's he's like, anybody reading this, I'm knocking at the door of your heart. He calls to us. We're told that he puts eternity in our hearts. We have a hardwired desire to understand more about the meaning of life and more about the purpose of my existence. And it's a, it's a, a thing that separates us from the animals. You're not just an animal, you're a human being and that is a completely different thing. And part of that is because you have eternity in your heart because God wants you to seek him. We're also told that God determines the time and place in which we live so that we might grope for him and seek him, and that he frees our wills so that we have a genuine ability to respond to his intervention. Now, not everyone does, right? We look at the world, we look at history, we look at the testimony of scripture, the experience of our own lives. Not everyone will respond to the invitation that God gives them, to the revelation that God gives them, to the intervention of grace in their lives but we have a free, genuine opportunity to do so because God has done all of these things. He has laid the path open for us and then freed our wills so that we can respond to him or we can reject him. But without God's intervention, there's absolutely no hope. No human being has ever saved themselves. You can't earn your way into heaven. You can't you can't cleanse yourself of sin. There's no way to do it. We are only saved because God made a way, because he did the work, because he paid the price, because he made a free offer of grace and salvation to us. And without God's transformation, we would remain in our sinful foolishness. And this is why we learn that when you become a Christian, God says, I make you a new creation. I gotta defoolify you. God says, he says, you need a new nature, right? You need a new mind, you need a new heart, you need a new perspective, you need a new understanding, you need new inclinations, new desires. And the Lord says, I wanna put all of those things in your life uh, and, and those new things, that new nature, that new heart, that new mind acts in response to grace and acts in response to the revelation of God. Verse four says, will evildoers never understand they consume my people as they consume bread. They don't call on the, on the Lord. When a person rejects God, when they refuse to follow him, 
you know, the only alternative is to then live a life that produces evil. Now, that's a hard thing to say, but this is just true of all of us. We're all sinners until our lives are saved by Jesus Christ and we're transformed, right? And even then, we're still sinners. We're just sinners that are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and one day we will be totally finished and and, and no longer have the influence of sin in our lives, right? But if a person rejects God, they are going to produce evil. The Bible calls them evildoers, doers of evil, right? And you say, well, I'm not an evildoer. That's, that's, you know, uh, that's reserved for really bad people who do really bad things. There are really bad people who do really bad things that, are, that don't compare to regular bad things that, that we do. <laughs> right? But to not go with God, to not believe God, to not obey God is to do evil. And the truth is that we may think, well, that evil is smaller, that evil is not that big of a problem, but it bears fruit and it takes root and it has all sorts of negative consequences and negative ramifications in your life. You may not be a serial killer, but you're still doing wicked things and that is bearing fruit in your life. This is the clear claim of the first four verses, that when we don't honor God, obey God, believe God, give our lives to God, then the result is corruption, evil, the harming of others. Because sin metastasizes, and it produces lots and lots of bad things. And specifically, we learn here that it produces oppression, harming others in smaller great ways. doesn't really matter, right? Harming others becomes the byproduct of our lives. And in fact, we see here it becomes commonplace. It's just like eating breadsticks before the entree arrives. He says, right, he says, will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread, just eating bread. Something I do all the time, something I do every day. And, uh, you know, it's just, this is just what I do. But this is what sin does. The Bible explains that if you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, you are held captive by sin and by the devil, to do his will, and his will is to do wickedness. But then wait, out of nowhere, there are suddenly two groups, right? Two groups are being talked about all of a sudden. Up to this point, everyone has been lumped together, right? The, the first three verses went to great lengths to say, everyone, all of us, the entire group, no, not one. I looked at everybody, no, not one, everybody, everybody, everybody. And yet, now we see that there is a group of evildoers, and then there is a group that the Lord has suddenly identified as my people. How did that happen? I thought we were all Nabals. I thought we were all fools. Well, how do I get into the group of God's people? <laughs> I would like to be in that group, please. Well, it's very simple. Uh, it, it's, it's put here fundamentally as calling on the Lord, right? They do not call on the Lord. That's the difference in verse four. Psalm 91 is all about the people who are protected and cared for by God. It says, if you wanna know who God protects, who God care for, cares for, who God brings into his special family, read Psalm 91. And in that psalm, the Lord says this in verse 15, speaking of a person, when he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor, right? So calling out to the Lord 
is the avenue by which we are brought into his special forever family and receive his salvation. On the flip side, when a person or a community or nation does not call on the Lord, the result is ultimately judgment and wrath. There's a variety of verses I could cite, but let me just read one. This is Psalm 76, nine. Pour out your wrath, Lord, on the nations that don't acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that don't call on your name. It puts a chill in your spine then when you think about our nation wanting to say, no, you can't pray in school. Let's remove this, you know, in God we trust from here. Let's do all this. Let's make sure we are as secular as possible. Uh, That's a scary place for a society to be. So these are the groups. These uh, uh, are, are the two options. You have those who call on the Lord and are brought into his family, transformed from the inside out, given heavenly honor. And then there are those who won't believe God or even if they give lip service to God, they won't live as if God matters or as if what they do matters in God's eyes. And if you do that, it keeps you in your sinful foolishness and makes you a slave of evil and it puts you on the road to wrath. Sadly, what we learn is that evildoers uh, are not confined to uh, dictators and serial killers, right? Evildoers can come from anywhere. Think of the time of David and Samuel, you Old Testament students. There were the Philistines, very obvious evildoers, right? Really clear. Um, You knew that they were on the other side. They were outside the people of God. They had an obvious agenda. But they weren't the only evildoers. We read there in the book of 1 Samuel about the sons of Eli. Now, the sons of Eli were priests, They should have been the spiritual guides. They should have been the experts who explained to the people of Israel how to know God, how to love him, how to honor him, how to praise him. Instead, they abused the people. They ripped them off. They defiled God's house. Later, uh, there was Absalom, right? David's very own son. Uh, And for a lot of reasons, but mostly just out of his own pride and out of his own greed and out of his own desire for power, he betrayed his, his whole family, betrayed the Lord, uh, and so uh, there's all these different enemies, right, that come from all different places, and, and we see that in the end, their, their fruit is always the same. It is the harming of others on one level or another. So the sons of Eli, they weren't killing anybody, right? But they were stealing from people and defiling the temple and, and ripping people off. The Philistines, they just wanted to kill everybody, right? And then you had Absalom. He's like, well, I don't want to kill everybody. I only want to kill certain buddies, <laughs> And so, but you have all of these different people and it's like, and David's seen here like, hey, man, Lord, they're consuming your people. Like they consume bread. And, and what happens is evil in a life is just simply the sin nature doing what it does and it creates oppression, it creates wickedness, it creates all of this harm to families and to communities and to nations at large and to the, the world community altogether. All of these enemies tried to devour others for their own desires at one level or another. Yes, some were worse, but it was all effectively the same thing. They all oppressed those weaker than them. They all thumbed their noses at God. Paul would make a list of evildoers over in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter six, kind of a scary list that you uh, you know, if you were saying, I would like a list of friends, please. Well, you wouldn't want a list, a, a group of friends that come off of this list. 
just different evil that people do that are seen as commonplace in many ways today, and we're in commonplace, uh, just kind of regular, well, this is what I do, and this is how I live my life, and this is my X, Y, or Z. And Paul says, you know, here's a list of really evil things that people were doing. And he has this great line, and he says, and such were some of you. You were these evildoers. You were on this list. And here, but then he said, but here's the good news, is that you're not on the list anymore. And what the Bible explains to us is that the corrupted can become consecrated. The, those who were evil because of sin can be set free from that sin, cleansed of that sin, forgiven of that sin, and now live with the everlasting life of God flowing through them. Fools can become faithful. We all start as Nabal, and we all have got that stupid Nabal living in our hearts still right now, right? It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how short you've been a Christian. Every one of us does have that, what Paul calls the body of death, the old nature, the flesh, the, you know, the sin living in our hearts. It has lots of names. But it's just a little Nabal in our heart saying, I'd like to be in charge, please. I'd like to have my way, please. I'd like to ignore what the king says, please. I'd like to thumb my nose at what I should do, please. And so uh, we all start as Nabal being in charge, but we don't have to stay that way. The Bible, in fact, has a book totally dedicated to how to learn God's wisdom. It's called the book of Proverbs, right? It's not the only book that teaches us that, but it's specifically dedicated to that. Saying, hey, you don't want to be a fool. Proverbs is all about the difference between a fool and a wise person. And he says, by the way, everybody needs to learn how to be a wise person. And the first chapter, the first uh, of, of Proverbs opens by saying, hey, take these words, which are from God, and with them you will be instructed in righteousness. And then when we follow God's revelation, when we respond to his call and then call back to him, okay, well then we become his people and the Lord protects his people, he provides for his people, he communes with his people, he transforms his people. A very, very simple transaction. It's not always easy to do, but uh, it's not necessarily complicated. The Lord says, I call to you, now call back to me. I have something to say to you, now apply what I say to your life, and as you do that, I will transform you by the power of my grace and the power of my spirit. Verse five says, then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. The fools of the world often seem to have one up on the people of God, like he, David said earlier, they're consuming the people every day, but there is a reckoning coming. Talked about this last time in a different psalm. God keeps track, God keeps score. A judgment is coming on everyone who rejects God, every nation, every person. And when that day comes, they will be filled with dread. Why? Because they will be without God, right? What does it say here? God is with those who are righteous, which obviously is saying, and he is not with those who are not righteous. And so without God, these people go into eternity alone, separated, abandoned. One of the Old Testament prophets wrote, the Lord will chase his enemies into darkness. What a scary thing to think about. The foolish unbelievers are headed toward a dreadful end because they will not accept God's invitation to be with him. He says, be with me. I wanna come into your heart. I wanna sup with you. I wanna spend life with you. I wanna walk with you. That's the invitation. And, and those who are fools and want to hold on to their foolishness say, no, 
please stay away. Now we who believe in God and live like it are headed not to an end, but toward a glorious new beginning in eternity. It's only possible because God has gifted us his righteousness, right? Notice it says God is with those who are righteous, not those who are perfect, thank goodness, <laughs> because we're not perfect. Now we'll be perfected one day in eternity, but here and now we still fall short. We still make mistakes. We still fail to live up to the wisdom of God. But as we walk with him, we are clothed in his robe of righteousness, and that makes all the difference. God is with those who are righteous. How do I become righteous? I receive his robe of righteousness, which he gives me as a free gift out of his grace when I believe and turn to him and turn from my foolishness, turn from my sin, and receive the life he wants to give me. What a good reminder that God is with us. He's here now, watching your life, directing your life. Let's act like it. Verse six, you sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. An attack on God's people is an attack on the Lord himself because he is our refuge. We are in him, hidden in him. What did Jesus say to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? He said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, I don't even know who you are. Who are you? He says, yo, you're gonna find out. <laughs> You Christians here tonight, remind yourself that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. He is our rock and stronghold. He is trustworthy and secure. We are invited to hide ourselves in him and be sustained and satisfied by his grace and his truth. His ways are true. His words are wisdom. We want to remind ourselves of that continually and be comforted. Why try to find security somewhere else in life? You know, when we face problems or we get scared or we get into some kind of trouble, our tendency, because we got a little nabal in our hearts, our tendency is to look to some other human or some human system or use human ingenuity to outwit our trouble, to dig ourselves out of the problem. But if we understand Psalm 14, if we go with David in what he's saying, that's just letting the inmates run the asylum and thinking everything's gonna work out great. It's just like, I love that, that meme of the dog in the burning room. And he says, this is fine. Everything is fine and the whole room is burning. I just, if you haven't seen that, you stop listening to what I'm saying and just find that right now and listen. <laughs> but that's effectively, when we go to human ways of solving problems, when we go to human leaders to, to you know, that we think, well, they're gonna solve everything, that, all the problems in society and all the things going on, then really all we're doing is trying to find a better fool or a lesser fool of two fools, right? But a lesser fool is still a fool. We wanna source the wisdom and insight and motivation and perspective we need for life from the Lord, our refuge. That's the climax of this song. Look at verse seven. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And so that's what we want, right? We want deliverance. We want ultimate, uh, ultimate uh, intervention from God for him to handle these things. Not for a single problem to be solved, but for all the foolishness of this life to be dealt with. That every enemy would be overcome, including the Nabal within my own heart. Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from all of that stuff. Our prayer can be, Lord, deliver me from Goliath, and deliver me from Absalom, but also deliver me from the Nabal within. There's a little stupid Nabal in there trying to take over, trying to coax me to go out of the refuge that is Jesus Christ. 
And, and he, go out of that person who is gonna provide for you and give you comfort and give you protection and all of that. Lord, save me from all of those fools. That phrase, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, may say, bring back the captivity in your version. Linguists do the thing they do and they argue over the specifics of the translation. But it's interesting, literally, the Hebrew phrase there is that God would turn the turning of his people. And I don't know why, but I just really love that phrase. What a beautiful picture, right? Put it all together. God bringing captivities home from being slaves to sin. God restoring the fortunes of those who have lost everything and giving them not just back what they lost, but an infinitely greater amount of fortune on top of that. God turning our turning and guiding and assisting us as we go his way. As we choose to say, I'm going to fill my hearts with an acknowledgement of who God is, what he's done, what he's commanded, and how I can be with him. At the end, the psalm speaks to both Jacob and Israel. They're the same people, of course. It's just a poetic way of repeating. But on a devotional level, there's really a wide difference between Jacob and Israel, right? Jacob was a scoundrel. Interestingly, one translation of verse one of this psalm has it this way. The scoundrel says in his heart, there is no God. If you were here for our Genesis studies a number of months ago, we saw the life of Jacob and how he developed in understanding and faith in God. As God walked with him, he transformed him from scoundrel to servant. And so we can join with this final verse and say, okay, Lord, deliver us. We're looking forward to the plan that you're establishing. Turn my turnings. Turn me from Jacob to Israel, from scoundrel to servant, from fool to faithful, Bring me into your company, transform my heart, my mind, fashion me into a wise doer of good and make me glad along the way. That's what the Lord wants to do. And when we pause to think about it, we want what the Lord wants. It's just that we have to quiet that loud mouth in there, that nabal in our hearts. And remember that the Lord's way is the only way to life, to wisdom, to understanding, to gladness.